Well, good morning. Let me begin by stating to you that I regret that I cannot be there with you in person this morning. Many of you probably have heard that Presley uh, tested positive for the COVID-19 virus this past Monday, and the doctor recommended that all of us and her immediate family um, remain isolated for 14 days. And while that was certainly not in our plan uh, to do that, uh, we believe it is the best course of action for us so that we do not unintentionally spread the virus to others. And so uh, I'm coming to you this morning uh, via recording. I can assure you, though, that all of us and our, and our family are feeling fine. We're all doing well physically. Uh, none of us are showing uh, any signs of, of sickness. And I would just uh, ask you to continue to pray for us. We appreciate the prayers that have already been offered uh, on our behalf. And we would just ask you to continue to pray for us that the Lord would continue to protect us and uh, keep uh, any uh, illness from, from coming into our family. And also uh, that we would be able to get back to normal doing the things that uh, we would like to be doing and, and serving in the capacity that we would like to be serving. This morning, if you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, uh, please take them out and turn with me once again to the book of Psalms and specifically to the 14th Psalm, to Psalm 14. Uh, in my studies, uh, what I found interesting about the 14th Psalm is that it is a psalm that is replicated in its entirety with only a few minor changes later in the book of Psalms. If you go and, and go home and read Psalm 53, you'll see that it is basically just like Psalm 14, although verses 5 and 6 have a, a little bit of difference in them. Uh, but it's repeated there. But then again, if you move on into the New Testament, into Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, you'll see that the Apostle Paul also repeats a significant portion of Psalm 14 in his letter to the Romans. And in contemplating that, I like what J.M. Boyce has, has written. He says, anything God says once demands attention. Anything God says twice demands our most intent attention. But three times, well, that demands our keenest concentration, contemplation, assimilation, and even memorization. In other words, there's something here in this psalm that we should read and mark and learn and inwardly digest. Well, to do that, we need to begin by reading it. So let's do that uh, this morning. Let's read the Word of God written by David. And we see there at the beginning, we see that this was a psalm written to the chief musician. And it is a psalm of David. Read with me there beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You shame the counsel of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. 
when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. We thank you for this time that you have afforded to us to be able to open our Bibles and to be able to study your scriptures. And we pray that you would give us attentive hearts and allow us to be able to understand that which you communicate to us through your divine word. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. The first thing that I want to point out to you from the text that I just read from you there in Psalm 14 uh, is, the, is the opening, really the opening statement of the psalm. David there describes a fool, both in the fool's words and in his actions. And in fact, let me direct you to the first point on your outline today. That first point, the first thing that we need to note from our text is this. We need to note what the fool says and does. What the fool says and does. Let me begin with what the fool says. Notice that David tells us that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, that statement has caused many to take this psalm uh, to be about atheism. Uh, specifically, uh, which according to the modern technical definition, atheism is, is a disbelief in the existence of God or, or gods in, in, in general. And certainly there are those in our world today who, who maintain such a position as atheism. Uh, they main, maintain a position that, that states that God is a myth and that the worship of God is, is, is worthless and is useless. It's a man-made creation that really has no real value other than to soothe the minds and the consciousness of, of the weak who find such concepts necessary for them. However, as many scholars have pointed out, it's unlikely that David encountered very many people in his day who would have claimed to be atheists according to that definition. I mean, after all, the pagan nations that surrounded Israel, they were nations who were idolaters. They believed and, and worshipped many gods. And, and even in uh, Israel, those who were unspiritual in, in Israel themselves would not have rationalistically denied the existence of God. And therefore, rather than avowed atheists, David would have much more likely encountered people who would have better be described as practical atheists. In other words, they were people who behaved in such a way that their lives reflected that God simply did not matter to them. God, God didn't count. There are certainly many like that today. They, they may not come out and say that they do not believe in God, but by the way that they live their lives, it attests to the fact that they do not see any need for God. They run their businesses, they, they raise their families, they plan their futures without ever taking God into consideration. I heard a stat just this week, a statistic about Georgians, that 70% of Georgians did not attend church one time last year. Not once. 70% of Georgians. You know what that tells me? It tells me that there are many, many people who are practical atheists. They deny 
God any meaningful place in their lives. He's not relevant to them. They may not deny his existence with their mouths, but they do so with their actions and with their lack of action. That's the essence of practical atheism. It is when a person who says in their heart that there is no God. It's when, it's when they live their life as if God has no control or authority over their life. When they aggressively and intentionally pursue independence from God and from His commandments. It's when they willfully choose the ways of the world over the ways of God. It's when they, they purpose in their heart to live according to their own rules and in pursuit of their own goals regardless of and in spite of what God says. Now notice with me that David calls such a person a fool. That may not sound very politically correct, but we need to recognize that David is not saying that such a person is, is intellectually deficient. He's not saying that they're uneducated. He's not saying that they're stupid. In, in fact, according to David's definition, a person may have multiple PhDs and yet still be a fool. You see, according to the Scriptures, a fool is someone who refuses to take God into account. The scriptures often use the terms fool and, and wicked interchangeably. And in fact, listen to how David describes the wicked back in Psalm, the 10th Psalm, verses 3 and 4. Listen to how he says it. He says, the wicked, he says, they renounce the Lord. And then he goes on to say this, and in his proud countenance, the wicked do not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. That's a very similar description to what we find in Job chapter 21, verses 14 and 15. There we read this, that the wicked say to God, depart from us, for we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we have if we pray to him? See, according to the scriptures, such people are not only wicked, they are fools. They are practical atheists because they choose their own will over God's will. And they refuse to acknowledge His sovereignty over their lives. And such a person is not someone who is merely mistaken, but rather is someone who has made an awful choice to live their life as if there were no God. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us. In Romans chapter 1, there he describes people who profess to be wise, but are in actuality fools. They're fools because, Paul says, they willfully suppress the truth of God's revelation of himself through his creation. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, he says that the evidence of God's sovereign and divine power had been clearly shown. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So the first thing that we learn from, from our text here as we reflect on it here in, in Psalm 14 is, is what the fool says and what he says in his heart is that there is no God. But we must also consider what David tells us that the fool does. 
Notice what else David tells us here in verse 1. He tells us that the, that the fool's life is corrupt. He goes on to say that the fool engages in abominable works and that he does no good. Let's consider each of these. The word corrupt it, it literally means to be spoiled. It means to be ruined. In other words, because God does not figure into any of the fool's thoughts or his plans... Well, God says that his insides are spoiled and they are rotten and they're poisoned. And then being in such a corrupt state then leads the fool to commit abominable deeds. In other words, the wicked actions and the sinful practices that the fool engage, engages in come as a result of being rotten on the inside. It's, it's like the old adage, garbage in equals garbage out. And so the fool's deeds are abominable. They are detestable in the eyes of God. And then that leads to the last clause that David states here. He says that there is none that does good. You know, the, the Russian poet Ivan Turgenev once wrote this. He says, I do not know what the heart of a man, of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. Turgenev's assessment really confirms the words of the prophet Jeremiah who wrote in Jeremiah 17 verse 9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So the fool lives a corrupt life. He commits abominable deeds and he does no good. And, and since he or she does not recognize God's authority over their life, he or she lives as though they will never give an account to God. They live as though God never actually sees what they do. But such a miscalculation could not be any farther from the truth. In fact, notice the next point on your outline. We move from examining what the fool says and does to now considering what the Lord sees and determines. What the Lord sees and determines. David tells us in verse 2 that the Lord God himself looks down upon the children of men. Now the first thing that we should recognize about what David writes here tells us that what the fool said back in verse 1, when he said in his own heart that there was no God, well, such a denial of God's existence and authority doesn't diminish the Lord at all. Listen, the world can deny the reality of God and his sovereign rule all it wants to, but that does not make him any less real. As James Johnson has put it, no matter what we small humans say and think, God still examines our lives. And when he does, verse 2 tells us what he's looking for. He is searching to see if there is anyone with a sense enough, an understanding, enough to seek after him. But notice according to verse 3, what he determines based upon what he sees is not good. The damaging summary of the Lord's findings is that all have turned aside, that, that they all together have become corrupt, that there is none who does good. And then to put the exclamation point on it, David says... That God, when he sees, he determines that there is no not one who seeks after him. 
In other words, as Peter Craigie has put it, sadly, the fool of verse 1 is not a rare subspecies within the human race. According to verse 3, all human beings are fools apart from the wisdom of God. Now, I think it's worth noting that this is not the first time in the scriptures that that we, we see God looking down upon his creation and specifically upon humanity, examining them and then finding pervasive corruption. In fact, we find three such examples of that in the book of Genesis. The first one we see in Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, where the Bible says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. All flesh. And as a result, what we read in Genesis 6 is that God sent the flood upon the earth as judgment. Then again, in Genesis 11, we we read of the Lord coming down and and observing his creation. And what he found was that all humanity was living in direct disobedience to his commands. Therefore, God confused their language and he divided the world at the Tower of Babel. And then we see it happen again in Genesis chapter 18. And in verse 21, where the Lord says of the people that were living in Sodom and Gomorrah, He says, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And ultimately, we know that those twin cities were destroyed with fire and sulfur because not one righteous man could be found living there. You see, what God saw when he looked those three times in the book of Genesis is what he saw when he looked upon humanity here in Psalm 14. And it's what he sees even today. Here is the awful reality. The earth is full of sin and corruption. And not a one of us is left out. Every single one of us finds ourselves implicated by what God sees and what he determines. I mentioned at the beginning that this psalm, Psalm 14, is is also quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3. And it it comes in the context of a a larger section in which Paul is describing sin's effect upon humanity. And I want you to listen to what Paul says beginning in verse 10 of Romans 3. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. But then Paul goes on to elaborate on that. He says their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues, with their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is Full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What an apt description of our world. And of our culture. In which we live in today. But do not miss this. Just a few verses later, after Paul writes what he does there, he goes on in Romans 3, verse 23, to summarize everything that he said with this statement. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
Now, let me ask you, do you recognize just how bad this news actually is? Can you appreciate the severity and the awfulness of all that we have come to understand so far? You know, it is one thing when you look at what the fool said and did back up in verse 1 and just think of him as being somebody else. It's one thing when you shake your head in disbelief that someone could ever live their life without any concept of God's existence and his sovereignty. It's one thing to think the fool is someone else, someone, who, someone who's to be avoided because of their corruption, someone who's to be shamed because of their abominable deeds, someone who needs to be rehabilitated because they do no good. But it is, it is humbling. It is sobering. It is, it is utterly and deeply embarrassing to think that such a description applies to you. But that is what the words all and together and none and no, not one. That is what those words do. They apply to you and to me. We are included. See, the fool of verse 1 is not referring to someone else. It's referring to you. And it's referring to me. None of us escape God's eye of judgment. And when He looks at us, every single one of us comes up lacking. Spurgeon put it this way. He says, Humanity, fallen and debased, is a desert without an oasis, a night without a star, a hell without a bottom. What I want you to know is the picture only gets worse. You see, if we go on and look into the next set of verses, we find that according to verse 5, the wicked and the foolish will suffer great terror. As one has put it, there is fear today and fear tomorrow for the wicked. You see, though they live as if there is no God, the fact is there remains the constant anxiety that comes from knowing deep down that God will one day judge every single one of us for the things that we do in this life. The guilt of unforgiven sin, it weighs heavily on our consciences. It terrifies us when we're all alone. Here's the thing, the present fear that we experience will give way to an even greater terror when Christ returns and we stand before Him. The book of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die and then after this comes the judgment. And listen, all of us, every single one of us, every single man, woman, boy and girl will one day have to stand before the God of heaven and give an account of their lives. No one will escape the all-seeing, all-knowing God. And listen, for those who, who lived as though God was unimportant, those who refused to acknowledge His sovereignty, those who said in their heart that there is no God and they, they lived their lives according to that belief, well, David says that what awaits them is terror. In this life, they may have lived large. They may have, may have had Wonderful lives by all horizontal accounts because they took advantage of others, as verse 4 indicates. But a day of reckoning will come. And so what we've witnessed so far is what the fool says and does. And we've also examined what the Lord sees and determines. 
But in this psalm, there is something else that we must observe, something that is absolutely necessary. Notice the next point on your outline. What we come to see is what we must stop and discover. What we must stop and discover. You see, up to this point in the psalm, everything that David has told us is quite depressing. The all-inclusive language of verse 3 tells us that none of us escape the penetrating stare of Almighty God who has determined that all of humanity is corrupt and that there is none who do good, no, not one. But with that being the indisputable evidence, there are some descriptive words and phrases in verses 4 through 6 that should stop us in our tracks. You see, in light of the universal nature of the emphatic testimony of humanity's sin and corruption described for us in verses 1 through 3, how then do we account for the fact that right there in the middle of verse 4, we see these words, my people. How do we account for the fact that in verse 5, we read that God gives His presence to the generation of the righteous? And furthermore, what do we do with the message of verse 6 that tells us that, that the There are those who are described as the poor or the afflicted, but they're able to find refuge in the Lord. Let me be clear. This is an important and a significant detail that we must not blow past. We must stop and discover. We must must pause and, and ponder who these people are and where they came from. You see, what the presence of these descriptive words and and phrases communicate to us is that in the midst of this pervasive sea of corrupt humanity that engages in abominable deeds and, and does no good, well, there are nevertheless some some who benefit from a special relationship with God. And what we recognize is that for the very first time in this dark psalm, There is a dim flicker of light. Now, David doesn't expound on who these folks are or or how they came to be known by God. He simply acknowledges their existence. But thankfully, we have the rest of Scripture to help us untie that knot. Consider once again the words of the Apostle Paul this time from the book of Ephesians chapter 2. And beginning in verse 1, there Paul writes this, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. See, what is clear from this passage that Paul writes is that we see once again that all of us, without exception, have lived corrupt lives. To put it in Davidic terms, we are all fools. We're wicked. We live as if there were no God to whom we would be accountable. Then Paul says that though that that we are dominated both by an external force, the prince and power of the air, that is Satan, but we're dominated by internal forces, the lusts of our own heart and our own flesh. And as a result, we are under the condemnation 
of God. We were like walking dead, awaiting God's judgment and eternal death in hell. Now, in many ways, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3 match up quite well with what David writes in Psalm 14 verses 1 through 3. But then notice what Paul says beginning in verse 4 of Ephesians 2. He says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Here is where we get into the specifics of the grace that we are left to guess at in Psalm 14. God's mercy toward wicked fools like you and like me that withholds the just punishment that we have rightly incurred upon ourselves because of our sin is really an extension of His unfathomable love for us. We, we have been saved not because of our good deeds and our righteous acts because left to ourselves, we have none of those. Rather, we have been saved because God loved us with a supernatural love that made us alive together with Christ. Now that is absolutely amazing. It's astounding to stop and to discover that and to consider it. It's the reason why we still sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. God's amazing grace, His, His unfathomable love, his unmerited favor should always make us stop and discover, pause and ponder the fact that even in the midst of this corrupt world, God in His grace has called a people to Himself. In His love, He has saved folks just like you and just like me who were undeserving of His grace and mercy. But we must also consider the other side of what we read in these verses. You see, just because God extends mercy and grace to those He calls my people, that does not mean that life will be easy for them. In fact, the wicked fools of the world are depicted there in verse 4 as eating and devouring the people of God as one would eat bread. Such conveys to us the callous cruelty of the world in which we live. And furthermore, based upon what we read in verse 6, that same group of people who are part of the generation of the righteous in verse 5, they are also the poor in verse 6, for whom the Lord is their only refuge. In other words, God's people, the one to whom He shows grace and mercy, well, they will not always fare well in this life. They will suffer persecution. They will be afflicted. They will be trounced upon. Even so, notice the flicker of light. It gets brighter when we realize that according to verse 5, God's presence is constant. It's a constant source of strength for His people. We learn that God will never leave or forsake those who are His own. And furthermore, as we've already identified, He is their refuge. He is their safe haven. He is their place of protection. And it is that revelation that actually catapults David into the final verse of this psalm in which we observe, notice the last point on your outline, we observe the hope that saves and delights. The hope that saves and delights. 
Let me read that last verse once more for you. The ESV translates it this way. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. You know what this verse realizes is that there is a salvation that has come. It is a salvation that has turned fools into forgiven and faithful believers. But there's more. You see, David is longing for the future and final salvation that assures that after this life of misery is over, there will be mercy. That after this life that is often filled with grief and oppression, that there will one day be grace everlasting. And such a hope of deliverance produces joy and gladness. It's a hope that saves and delights. And what we must recognize is that David's words here in verse 7 remind us of the expectation of all of those Old Testament saints who looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, the, the one who would come and crush the head of the serpent who has been opposing God's people ever since the garden. He would be the one who would come like the prophet Moses, only, only he would be greater by far than Moses. He would be the one who would come and, and sit on David's throne, only he will rule forever and forever. He will be the one who would come and save his people from their sins. And what we must recognize further is that what we really recognize is that David, David who he is longing for, what he was longing for has already come. In fact, the word translated salvation there in verse 7, we've noted this in previous studies, it's the word Yeshua. It is, it is the name that was given to Jesus, Yeshua, which is transliterated into Greek as Iesus. Jesus' name, it literally means God will save. Jesus Christ is the Messiah who came and lived a perfect life, a holy life, which none of us could ever live. He died a vicarious death, taking upon himself the penalty that we incurred because of our sin. And he rose again, thereby defeating death, hell, and the grave. And all of that has already occurred. And now we await his return. The scriptures declare that when the Lord Jesus does return, he will bring with him both salvation and judgment. Those who have placed their faith in him need not fear his judgment. But those who have not, those who continue to operate off of the foolish notion that there is no God, well, there is every reason to fear. You see, if you live life without thought or care of God, if you, if you choose to, to make your own way rather than according to His way, if you refuse to acknowledge that you are the fool and the wicked and the rebellious sinner, and if you refuse to repent of your sin and trust completely in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, then on that day, you will stand terrified before Him. On the other hand, if you will acknowledge who you are, that by nature you are a corrupt sinner, a doer of abominable deeds, unable to do any good on your own. And if you will repent of your sin and place your faith solely and completely 
in Jesus Christ, making Him your refuge, then on that day you will rejoice and you will be glad forever. The promise given to all who come to Him by faith in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, will be yours to claim. Because there we read these words, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, with which I will close. And it is unashamedly an appeal that I make to you this morning if you have never repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ. My sermon in a sentence is this. Don't be foolish and continue in your rejection of God. But rather, humble yourself before Him in repentance and receive the salvation that He offers to you through Jesus Christ. Listen, you can move from being a fool who has lived as though your life was just on your own you can move from living your life from your living your life as if there were no god and you can move from there to being forgiven of your wickedness forgiven of your sin because of the love that god has demonstrated toward you through jesus christ the messiah don't be foolish don't continue to reject the grace and the mercy that the Lord God offers you through His Son. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we are so grateful to You for the love that You show to us, the grace that You show to us, the mercy that is undeserving. We thank You so much for sending Your Son Jesus to die in our place so that we might be forgiven of our sins and that we might be moved from the fool that we are to being one who is forgiven. Lord, we're grateful that you love us with that love that we can never completely understand. Father, it is my prayer this morning that if there is one who is listening to this message penetrating their hearts, they're recognizing that they have lived a, a life of practical atheism. They've lived on their own terms as if you don't matter and as if you never see. My prayer is today that they might be brought into a place of conviction about that, that they would come to recognize that there is a God with whom they will have to one day reckon and that their only hope comes in Christ. That is my prayer, and I pray that your Holy Spirit might move in their hearts to bring them to a conviction of sin and righteousness and of judgment to come. Lord, for those of us who have trusted in you and our faith is in you, I pray that we would recognize the hope that will come, that even though we live this life, that it, it's not always easy, that there are those that oppress us and those who antagonize us. Lord, we recognize that one day all things will be straightened out. You are the one who is sovereign and you see all things and you keep accurate records. And we can trust in you. So we pray that we would find solace in that and peace and hope in that knowledge this morning. We are grateful for your goodness and we ask for your continued protection over our lives. In Christ's holy name, amen.